Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for today, the account of the ascension of our Lord from the first chapter of Acts, but in particular these words, so when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even on to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. If I would mention the word concord and the word transportation, most of you would immediately put the two words together and think of the Concorde supersonic passenger jet, which would carry its passengers, you'll recall, from New York City to Paris in about three and a half hours at about 55,000 feet in altitude, more than 10 miles up there, at an average cruising speed of 1,300 miles per hour, twice that of a conventional passenger jet. The Concorde supersonic jet, you'll recall, that flew its last flight in November of 2003. You wouldn't think typically of another Concorde that really has a lot to do with transportation as well. Compare that jet to the Concorde of transportation history, the Concorde stagecoach that was built back in 1827 in Concord, New Hampshire, and thus it was called the Concorde. Quite an invention the stagecoach was. Despite its reputation for being sturdy and for being roomy and for being comfortable, it wasn't at all as romantic a form of transportation as sometimes we're inclined to think that it might have been. Indeed, a single stagecoach would hold nine passengers inside of it and another 12 passengers up on top of the stagecoach, depending upon the amount of luggage and things like that were, that were there. That meant about 15 inches of space inside of the stagecoach that you had to squeeze yourself into with eight other passengers inside all having their 15 inches of space inside of the coach. You can well imagine how together they must have all felt within there. And then on top of it all, it had leather curtains that would pull down over the windows to keep the dust out from the horses that, of course, were in front of you. Claustrophobia, if you tended to have it, it would be quite a trip, especially going from St. Louis to San Francisco at the average speed of eight miles per hour. If you were fortunate, it would take 25 days, more likely 30 and more. Can you imagine taking a trek like that? And of course, if you were fortunate, you might be able to have a first-class ticket. Because that ensured that if you had a first-class ticket, you'd be able to remain in the coach no matter what happened along the way. The road was muddy. Others would have to get off, but not you, because you had a first-class ticket. There was a tree falling over the road. You could stay inside. A steep hill over which the horses had to have some help in getting over it. You, with a first-class ticket, 
would be able to stay inside the coach. Second class, well, to lighten the load, you'd have to get off, but at least you wouldn't have to carry anything. You'd get off and you'd walk along the coach, alongside of it, down the muddy road, up the hill, whatever it might be, but at least you didn't have to carry anything off. Third class, not only did you have to get off to lighten the load, but you were expected to push the coach through the mud, if it was stuck in the mud, or up the hill, if it couldn't make it up the hill, or lift the tree off the road and to help cut it up if it needed to be cut up and to remove it. And if the baggage had to be unloaded, you would help unload it. And of course, you would help reload the luggage. Whatever needed to be done to keep that coach moving forward and moving onward, you were expected to help out because you were, after all, a third class ticket holder. One of the problems, friends, that has been facing the church of every generation is that there have been so many folks, so many people who have thought of themselves as being first-class or second-class passengers, eager to sit in the coach or to walk alongside it, eager for that trouble-free glory that Scripture promises us, that the Lord Jesus speaks of so often but so eager for it, so eager to have that kingdom of glory immediately transferred to us now while we're here upon earth physically and materially and prematurely to have it evident in our lives, the comfortable kind of Christianity that markets well, the cozy kind of Christianity that you can snuggle up to and feel toasty warm inside about. That's the kind of Christianity that so often people want, that classy kind that perceives itself as exempt from, indeed a bit above, such things as confession of sins and cross-talk, a cross-centered theology and a Christ-focused mission. The Christianity which doesn't see that sin does indeed have its earthly consequences, even though sin is forgiven, to be sure, it still has its earthly consequences. And so often people don't want that kind of Christianity. They don't want the kind of Christianity that comes by confessing of the faith, even though that means, and you can be sure of it, that in this world there will be tribulation because of that confession of faith that the Christian makes. Third-class Christians, now, that's just not the kind of Christianity that markets well in our world where everybody wants first-class privileges. Isn't that what the disciples in today's text indeed were expecting, that Jesus was going to give them that first or at least the second-class kind of Christianity? Isn't that they, they were asking that Jesus would give them when they were up there on that mountaintop with him, experiencing what they would experience as being the ascension of our Lord? Look, they said, Lord. Lord, are, are, are you at this time, at this time, notice, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore to Israel the glory of those past days, its power, now that you've risen from the dead, and now that you're ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father with all glory and all power, are you going to now right every earthly wrong? and? receive and give to us right here and now some of that earthly glory that we might even here and now enjoy it. And what was our Lord's response? 
In essence, he said, no, no, not yet. Not yet, because there are things that I've got for you to do before that time. That time will come, but not yet. You've got a confession of faith that is going to be shared with the whole world before that day of glory ever comes. It's not for you to know the times and the dates, he says, which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and what's the consequence of having received that power? You will be my witnesses. The disciples thought that Christ was going to hand them some of those first-class tickets so they could ride comfortably from where they were to glory. Or surely he was going to hand them at least second-class tickets so that they would be able to stand along the side of the coach until he returned. But what does Jesus do? Now he hands them, if you will, those third-class tickets, instead third-class tickets, because he's got a lot that he wants them to do. Tasks which for them would involve suffering. Tasks which for his people would involve suffering because they would be persecuted for the confession of faith that the Holy Spirit would enable them to give as time would go along as they would confess Christ and him crucified. And the only way, the only source of salvation, the only way to heaven, the world would persecute them because of that message, suffering that St. Peter talks about in his epistle so clearly when, for example, he says, don't be surprised at all of the painful ordeals and the trials that you're going to have, that you're going to suffer as though something strange and unusual, he says, were happening to you. No, instead, instead of being surprised at these things, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. You'll have your ascension to glory, but in due time, because it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's what he said to his disciples then. What about us today? Is the message really of Christ any different than that? Is Christ handing out those first-class tickets yet, or even those second-class ones? Not yet. Not yet. Unfortunately, the number of those that think that they have first or second class tickets already are few because God's work among us is never accomplished and completed by those kinds of ticket holders. The stagecoach could fall apart and they wouldn't care enough to help and to hang around it. They'd simply catch a ride on another coach, even if it's being driven by a driver who takes them in totally the wrong direction. That's what the human condition and mind is inclined to want and inclined to do. You see, they've concerned themselves first and foremost with their comfort. They have no sense of loyalty, no sense of confessional commitment that compels them to do whatever needs to be done so that the coach of their confession rolls along, carrying along with it its precious cargo of souls, young and old, until finally it reaches that glorious destination beyond and over the wilderness through which it must travel, they have forgotten or they never knew that a congregation is all the people of Christ 
sinners indeed all, living here together in this wilderness until that time that Christ calls us home, and then while we're here together, walking alongside the coach, pushing when pushing needs to be done, and helping when helping needs to be done, that they are enthusiastically working together as a family called together by Christ, each one doing what he can. It's a people so loyal and so committed to God's word and to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ that they've never abandoned one another and their confession of faith in Christ in order to get a, a more comfortable or a more entertaining ride from someone else. Thankfully, there are a lot of people in the church and a lot in this congregation who see themselves as third-class ticket holders. Those who will get out and push when there's pushing to be done. Those who so love the confession of the church that they would stay with it in the worst of times, even if it means severing ties that have long been dear to them in order to stay true to that confession to which they were called by God's grace. A loyalty to a confession that must forever supersede any loyalty to an institution. A loyalty to a confession that has been given us to confess before the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who don't concern themselves with the notion that they may be doing more than someone else might be doing. Those who see that whatever they do to help, no matter if it's doing the heavyweight work or even standing around to encourage those who are doing it, that they are serving a purpose to which Christ has called them. So you see, it's not a put-down at all. Not at all. To think of yourself as being a third-class ticket holder in God's kingdom. Not in this context. It's not a put-down. Granted, every Christian, everyone is a first-class Christian in terms of our relationship to God. That we would not question for a moment. First class in terms of our relationship to God because God, Scripture says, is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't consider one of us better than the other. We're all equally in need of His grace. We're all equally in need of His forgiveness because we're all equally sinners in His sight. We're all equally in need of His salvation which he has provided for us equally through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, into which you then are equally baptized. And so St. Paul says you're all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with him. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you were all one in Christ. Baptism into Jesus makes us all equal. It's the great equalizer of us all. Every Christian is a first-class Christian in terms of his redemption, and none of us should see ourselves as better than anyone else. Indeed, St. Paul writes, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says, and give preference to one another in honor. And remember what some of the disciples were asking Jesus for when they asked him for preferential treatment? And what was his response to them? He said, it's not to be this way among you. 
But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. And so in the context of redemption, there are only first-class Christians. But when it comes to the work in his church, which he has prescribed for all of his redeemed on earth, he has handed out no first and second class tickets, but only third. Third class tickets that involve us then to the degree that we're physically able to be involved, but certainly to the degree that we all can be involved in putting that confession of Christ and him crucified out there before all of the world, no matter what the cost to us might be, confessing the faith together in the world, starting in the Jerusalem of our own homes, going into the Judea of our neighborhoods and our communities, and then into the Samaria of our area, and indeed, he says, into all of the world. And that's what Christ would have his church do. And then when our work is finally done, we may well be tired, we may well have gone through and traversing the wilderness a great amount of persecution, but we will not be disappointed, for then we will enter into that eternal rest that has been promised by Christ, that rest to which he has entered into the heavens indeed to prepare for those that he will eventually call unto himself. That which his Father has willed that we should receive, we will in due time receive, an inheritance that's freely given us, not as wages do, but freely by grace given, an inheritance of glory that God the Father has prepared for all of those who love his Son. The story is told about a very wealthy man who lost his wife when their only child was very young. And so the man, understandably, loved his little son, who brought him such joy at the loss of his wife. He hired a governess to serve as a nanny for his son and a housekeeper in his home. And sadly, when the boy reached his teens, he fell to a horrible sickness himself, and the, and the boy in his teens died. And now the father was a man, indeed, of great grief, having lost the love of his life and his wife, the other love of his life and his son, heartbroken from the second tragic loss of a loved one. The father grew increasingly ill, and in a short time he died as well. No will or last testament could be found, and since there were no surviving relatives, the state began to process and to confiscate the man's fortune and all of the man's personal belongings were put in the auction block first to be followed some weeks later by the sale of the land and the house. The old housekeeper had very little money herself, but she was determined that she was going to buy something in that house that would be precious to her and would remind her of the man there that she had served as well as his son whom she dearly loved. And so what she did is with the little money that she had, she bought a painting that hung on the stairway wall in the house for many years, a large painting and a portrait of the young boy that she had loved so much and that she had nurtured for so many of his 15 years. 
When the items of the home were auctioned, no one wanted that painting, and so she was able to buy it for just a few dollars. And once she had that painting in her home, she began to clean it and polish the frame, treasuring and cherishing the memories that that painting evoked within her. And as she took the frame apart to repair it, a paper fell out from behind the cardboard backing. And it was the last will and testament of the man that she had served for so many years. And it read as though he somehow knew that she would have possession at some time of that portrait. It said, I will my wealth and all of my estate to the one who loved my son enough to claim this portrait as her own. God wills far more to all of those who love his son. Far more. He's prepared for us far more than our hearts desire and than our minds can possibly conceive. How blessed we are to labor in life for a love so undeserved, for a love so great as this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.